3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on 3CR, 855 AM. On Thursday breakfast, it's just gone 7.02 in the morning, and I am in the studio with Melika and in the next door studio to Priya. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. I'm so good to have you both here after that beautiful sunrise this morning. Yeah, what a treat. It was really lovely to ride in and, I mean, see all of the pinks and the oranges. And I didn't capture a photo of it, but you got a good one. And I hope some other people did as well for those of us who were not up early enough to have a look. Yeah, do we still have a Thursday breakfast Instagram? We do. Well, uh, we can grace the listeners with that. I reckon. That was a really subtle plug, Grazy, to get <laughs> listeners to follow us. I mean, I don't have Instagram, so as you can tell, I don't know. <laughs> if you follow us, uh, you will you will get to see uh, the rundown in our stories every week for what's you know what's coming up on the show. So, <coughs> I, I guess it's worth chucking us a follow at Three CR Thursday Breakfast on Instagram, and also follow at Three CR Melbourne on Instagram because that's where you that that's the hub for all of our programming. You're going to see everything exciting that's coming up on the station. Yeah, so all this uh, work that I don't see Priya doing, but yeah, there's all this social media work behind the scenes that is, um, I'm very grateful for, truly grateful. Incredible. Well, um, once again, I'm going to do uh, my morning plug for getting vaccinated and also for checking those exposure sites, getting tested if you have any symptoms and, you know, taking care of yourself, taking care of your community, sanitizing, you know, following all of those regular procedures that just keep everybody safe because as we move into this uh, easing of restrictions, something that's really important to remember, and this has been echoed in our conversations with people like L. Gibbs, um, you know, disabled folks are really getting left behind and thrown under the bus a little with the, you know, with the way that the vaccination rollout has sort of failed to capture those that are most vulnerable. And we really need to make sure that you know, this isn't some sort of return to normal, but recognizing that people are going to be easing into this in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, just it has been a, a massive shift um, in everything since last week's show. So yeah. hopefully everyone's yeah taking the time to process that and think about what they're up for in the next coming weeks. And yeah, trying to remember that um, as well as being excited, it is important to keep our community safe. Yeah, if you know me, don't invite me to anything, please. Yeah, Priya was already saying out, out the front of the station this morning that they will absolutely not be doing anything, so sorry, but you can't see them. Exactly. Um, but we have a, a big show for you today, so maybe we should jump into our rundown. Um, so first up, on Tuesday the 12th of October, the Australian Western Sahara Association held a panel discussion on the United Nations' role in the Western Sahara conflict and some of our responsibilities in the area. And today you will hear two speakers from the discussion. So first up is Golriz Gahraman, MP, who's a Green Party of Aotearoa New Zealand member. 
and Kamal Fadel from the Polisario Front, and he's the representative for the Front in Australia and New Zealand. And the full recording is on the association's Facebook page, which is Western Sahara Down Under. So encourage people to follow that as well uh, to learn more about what's going on in Western Sahara and the fight for sovereignty of the Sahrawi people. We will then be speaking with Chris Schringer, um, campaigner from Gecko, the Gungera Environment Centre, in discussion with Megan Zeb from City Limits on how important direct action continues to be in protecting the environment. And then we'll be hearing from Amer Kangiza, an award-winning geographer and sound artist. And Amer is an incoming Marie Curie International Fellow in Geography at Royal Holloway University of London. And they're joining us to discuss working through listening and attunement to approach the relations between people, place and ecologies. And then we'll be speaking with Mama Alto, who's a jazz singer, cabaret artist and gender debt gender transcendent diva they are also the ceo of transgender victoria she joins us to talk about rainbow vaccination week or fab jab and yeah there's an event happening tonight or a, a discussion happening tonight uh, on fab jab so encourage people to head to joy.org.au forward slash fab jab to find out more about that awesome what a show always a massive one I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and I think it's time for some headlines. Yeah, uh, once again, thanks to the legendary Emily, who has joined our team and has been giving us some amazing headline content, writing up these summaries for us. Thanks so much, Emily. So in headlines this week, first up, a number of people seeking asylum who are currently detained in the Park Hotel in Melbourne have tested positive to COVID-19. And reports this week indicate that one of those detained is unvaccinated despite seeking the vaccine before testing positive. Despite the close confines of the detention conditions, the vaccination program for asylum seekers only started rollout two months ago. Outside of detention and for temporary visa holders who managed to navigate COVID-19 vaccine access, vaccination status is difficult to document or prove. This means migrants such as refugees, international students, and people on bridging visas, including those who are coming out of long lockdowns in Sydney and Melbourne, have limited access to work opportunities, services, and venues. While those affected work to try to determine where the problem lies amongst poorly linked MyGov systems and unclear processes, federal government representatives deny there is a problem. In other news, A disaster beyond reckoning is how the destruction of sacred 46,000-year-old caves in the Jukun Gorge was described at the close of Northern Australia Committee's inquiry this week. The inquiry shows that this this destruction at the hands of Rio Tinto was one amongst a great number of incidents of ongoing heritage damage. Evidence indicates serious deficiencies in the protection of First Nations cultural heritage, 
and recommends that new laws should be developed and introduced at state and federal levels co-designed by First Nations people. Finally, intersex people have been campaigning for a ban on non-consensual surgeries for decades. And in a landmark report released this week, the Australian Human Rights Commission recommends a new legislation that ensures medical interventions take place only with the consent of the person concerned, except in cases where the treatment is a medical necessity. The report is based on consultations with intersex people, their families, advocacy and legal groups, and clinicians, and provides recommendations for the establishment of an independent panel and criminal penalties for not complying with changing laws. That's all we've got for the headlines this week. Is there anything you wanted to add, guys? I don't have any more headlines, um, but, yeah, just reflecting back on all of those headlines, like, really, um, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot going on at the moment, and just, again, that, that thing of um, groups of people and um, communities who are being kind of terribly affected by COVID still as we open up is um, just kind of stark to see, isn't it? Like, with um, the refugees and asylum seekers in the Park Hotel and... I mean, of course, that has a lot to do with being, you know, detained and incarcerated there and and the conditions um, that they're living under, but just really terrible. Yeah, it's just, it's absolutely, you know, it's absolutely appalling to see that people have been asking for vaccination. And this is, you know, so many people that have been brought in under the Medivac legislation that was then repealed, and they first came here to access medical treatment, which they still haven't access to. On top of that, they are vulnerable to COVID-19, and now that it's gotten in, are really concerned about how they're going to be able to survive. Yeah, and I think they have been calling on people to write to their um, local representatives and really just try and, like, it's this obviously an ongoing issue um, and a continuing, you know, thing that is just completely ignored by government and um, it's terrible. But I think, yeah, this is a this is a time to really get behind these um, refugees and asylum seekers in the Park Hotel. And, like, this is, yeah, ludicrous that they've come here for medical treatment and then they're being exposed to this um, terrible virus in a completely unconscionable way. Yeah. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 12 past 7 in the morning. Now, we're going to hear a bit of audio from a panel discussion that was held on Tuesday, the 12th of October, October by the Australian Western Sahara Association, and this was to discuss the United Nations role in the Western Sahara conflict. So today you're going to hear two speakers from this discussion, Golriz Gahraman MP, who's from the Green Party of Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Kamal Fadel, who's the Polisario Front representative in Australia and New Zealand. And here's that conversation. Uh, um, yeah, so I um, come to you and come to this issue as um, 
the so-called first refugee MP in New Zealand's House of Representatives, and I really just want to centre um, what others have said in terms of this being very much a refugee issue, a humanitarian issue, and an issue of justice for Indigenous peoples. I actually sort of have come to hate the term colonisation. I think it really sanitises what is a collection of very serious international crimes, and I think we often refer um, to, to crimes that are committed by powerful nation-states and Western nation-states, and um, dare I say it, um, the, the, the essentially white people around the world as being these other things, whether it's colonisation or, or whether it's... Um, um, you know, occupation, and, and, and it is theft in this case. It's um, forcible displacement of people. It's, it's been murder. It's, um, it, it's what we need to talk about in terms of a mass crime that we're facilitating. Um, and the best thing that people can do, and New Zealand talks a lot about, about refugees and, and about, uh, you know, the way that we stand with refugees and the way that we do better than our big neighbour next door. Um, but, I mean, the only thing really that refugees across the globe and displaced peoples want is that others don't actively profit and benefit from our displacement. That's the only way to really prevent um, these catastrophes where we've been abandoned, in this case, um, with the Indigenous people of Western Sahara for generations. Uh, New Zealand does far worse than Australia when it comes to this issue. Um, we continue to persistently trade in stolen phosphate, um, which we know both incentivizes the continued occupation and also means that once that occupation ends, the Indigenous population returning to their homeland will have far less resource to rebuild and to, and to prosper and to, to nation-build. Um, our courts have found that that's okay. Our government, and I come to you from beyond that um, election that I know Australia and Britain are waiting for where, where there's a decisive Labour win, <laughs> but our successive governments have kept to that position that, you know, we stand with um, the United Nations when it comes to its decolonization agenda. Um, we certainly recognize the uh, list and it's, you know, it's a privilege to be on the decolonization list. We know that, um, that, that some of the, some of the people that we, we fight for often, um, like the, the indigenous West Papuans just, just over, um, in being occupied by Indonesia quite violently haven't made it onto that list even. This is, this is a situation where there's international law very strongly engaged and New Zealand still maintains our right to continue to buy stolen phosphate and benefit from that because we're so reliant on in, in intensive dairy farming and in, intensive agriculture um, that's obviously causing a whole different um, crisis in terms of the, the global climate crisis. Um, and we won't divest and we will continue to do this. Um, and so I, I hold the foreign affairs and trade portfolio and I've done that in government last term and now outside of government and, and, and as a result of that I sit on the foreign affairs defence and trade select committee. Um, it's wild to me that our government has always seen those issues as being so closely related as to have just one committee um, and it's very telling. Um, 
And I can tell you from the inside of that that trade is the determinative bit of the work that we do in that committee. Uh, foreign affairs might engage humanitarian law, human rights treaties, um, defence obviously engages with national security, but also um, with, uh, you know, for example, ratifying the um, nuclear arms treaty that just we just had come into effect, and New Zealand really celebrates that we're a nuclear-free nation in every way, except when it comes to divestment of investment and trade even when it comes to nuclear issues. So, you know, we have, for example, our national superannuation fund is, is far from divesting from, from um, what our nation has committed to in terms of disarmament, including um, the nuclear arms treaty. Then when it comes to something like Western Sahara, it's even more vague. Our uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I think this is, for me, the, the big piece where the UN um, and... Uh, states parties have failed is that our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade is very comfortable relying on legal advice obtained by the companies trading on whether or not it's okay to continue trade. And that is, has been allowed to happen because there isn't clarity about what compliance looks like. We can go off and be this great, you know, progressive nation now under, and in, and in many ways, you know, I do celebrate the progressive stance of our government in various things, including in, in tackling the COVID crisis, but we do get to go off and make statements internationally and sign on to things in the realm of humanitarian law and human rights, and, and, and including on, on the rights of Indigenous peoples. But what compliance looks like, what, um, what sort of honouring those positions looks like is very vague, both in law um, and in terms of diplomacy. We need, we need that to be clarified, and I think it's an obligation of our government and parliament, but, you know, our government is, is majority held by one party, and, and you know, that as, as it often is, so it's, it sort of becomes a little bit harder to say that parliament can stand aside from what the government does. And the courts are very willing to kind of succumb to that, at least here, but our government does need to clarify what it says it's signing on to when it signs on to support the UN's work, whether it's on, on human rights or whether it's on indigenous issues or whether it's on disarmament or humanitarian issues. And in this case, there's nothing clearer um, than, this, than, than the case of we support the decolonisation uh, list and the register and we, we um, stand with people that have been displaced and we stand with refugees but when it comes to a benefit that our dairy industry, our agriculture industry, um, can have uh, from trading in stolen phosphate, there's nothing clearer than that. And I think, you know, as someone who's kind of uh, lived under a Middle Eastern war, a different, a different region that is very um, familiar with what war and displacement looks like because we happen to have um, resources in the ground that other people want, um, I definitely, I think it's time to kind of acknowledge that that war, displacement, and humanitarian crises would almost never happen if there weren't so-called peace-loving nations who were willing to profit and benefit commercially in some way um, from some of these from some of these crises. And I think that's that's kind of the crux of where the UN needs to come in and where other nation states need to be much more honest about what our commitment actually looks like. 
This event is being held uh, on uh, an important day for the people of Western Sahara. Uh, it's uh, called the Unity Day, which will be celebrated today in the refugee camps. Because 46 years ago, on the 12th of October 1975, Saharawi members of the Spanish parliament, uh, chiefs and elders, uh, as well as polisario leaders and members, met uh, to express their unity behind the, the polisario and their, as their sole uh, representative and also their desire, express their desire to achieve independence. But our issue here uh, is, uh, is, is the, the United Nations responsibility towards Western Sahara. And um, what I'm going to do is uh, very briefly touch on that responsibility because uh, I think Francesco uh, uh, tackled the historical background. And then what I think has, uh, why the United Nations has failed uh, during the past 30 years of its involvement uh, and the Moroccan obstructions, and what the United Nations needs to do to reboot the process, uh, and what are our expectations, the Sahrawi people and members of the Polisario. So the, the, the United Nations has been involved in West Sahara for the past 58 years, when the UN uh, included West Sahara on the list of the non-self-governing territories in 1963, and in 1964, it called for the organization of a referendum in Western Sahara. In 1988, uh, Moroccan Polisario accepted the United Nations and Organization of African Uni Unity Plan, which called for the organization of a referendum of self-determination. A ceasefire was declared on the 6th of September 1991, and the UN deployed its mission, Minorso, in Western Sahara with a view to holding the referendum. This was supposed to take place in 1992, but Morocco has failed to fulfill its part of the engagement and has obstructed the implementation of the settlement plan until now. The UN has spent, can you believe this, more than 2 billion US dollars on Minoso and appointed five United Nations special, um, UN Secretary General personally voice and 15 special representatives of the Secretary General. Why? Have they all failed? Well, there is a long list of how Morocco has cheated the UN uh, peace process in Western Sahara, how the kingdom has broken the rules time and time again. These are just some examples. We know that Morocco obstructed the referendum process and that in 2002, the king of Morocco, without any basis, rejected the entire UN referendum process and described it as obsolete. In 2010, Moroccan forces attacked the Gdemizik protest camp outside of Alayoun and dismantled it. Uh, subsequently, they detained 25 Sahrawi human rights activists who remain in prison. In March 2016, Morocco unlawfully and without warning or consultation expelled the civilian component of Minosu, completely undermining the mission. We know that Morocco and its allies in the Security Council have permanently blocked the inclusion of human rights monitoring in the mandate of Minosu. In August 2016, the Moroccan army invaded the Bafra Strip at the Gagarat area in Western Sahara in a clear violation of the terms of the ceasefire. The Moroccan army attacked Sahrawi protesters at Al-Gagarat in November 
last year, 2020, unoccupied the buffer strip in a flagrant violation of the ceasefire and the military agreement signed with the parties. We know that the, the Moroccan regime continues to deny access to independent observers and the media uh, who try to enter the territory. Recently, on uh, 2nd of October this year, uh, this month, Morocco expelled two Spanish lawyers and a doctor who attempted to visit the Sahrawi human rights activist Sultana Haya, who has been under house arrest uh, for almost a year and who is being abused by Moroccans' Asians daily, on a daily basis. Ambassador Frank Kirby, former deputy chairman of the Minoso Identification Commission, has used terms such as thugs and mafia to describe the behavior of the Moroccan authorities in Western Sahara. We have seen this all before, he has said, in South Africa during apartheid. Morocco continues to plunder the resources, as has been mentioned before, in violation of the UN uh, legal opinion and the decisions of many courts, such as the EU Court of Justice and the High Court of South Africa. We are heartened by the decision of the General Court of the European Union in September this year, which concluded that uh, the fisheries and agricultural trade agreements between the European Union and Morocco were invalid as they legally included the Western Sahara territory. So what is uh, the way forward? Uh, we recognize that the United Nations Secretary General has appointed on the 6th of October uh, a new personal envoy, Mr. Stéphane de, uh, de Mistura. The personal envoy must be guided by the fact that the issue of Western Sahara is a decolonization issue and is not a conflict over the sovereignty of a territory. This is an illegal occupation generated and maintained by force and an unequivocal violation of the UN Charter and international law. From here, the new personal envoy must, must work to ensure the closure of the illegal crossing of Gagarat and the withdrawal of the Moroccan army from the buffer state that was occupied in November 2020. The approach to, to the Gagarat breach will define how this new era will evolve. The UN must realize that, you know, defi definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Maintaining the and managing the status quo is no longer bad. Language like mutually acceptable, acceptable political solution or based on compromise or a realistic practicable solution is simply used to confuse the decolonization process and hamper United, United Nations efforts. Such empty, pointless words must stop immediately. One such term is, as Francisco mentioned, the Friends of Western Sahara. This is a meeting group within the UN Security Council, but the membership of this potential useful vehicle is, based towards, is biased towards Morocco, and its composition is not democratic. Western Sahara is primarily an African issue. For instance, yet an African, states are, African states are excluded from the group. Reform of the group is needed. The UN must ask must not ask, but demand that Morocco allow the organization of the referendum and otherwise comply with the 1990 settlement plan. Lift all restrictions on, imposed on Minerso. Allow African Union observers to return to Western Sahara. Release all political prisoners and detainees. Allow free and unhindered access to the territory. Allow free movement for the Saharawis. Now, 58 years later, the UN must 
once and for all fix a date for the referendum of self-determination and set a clear roadmap in accordance with the settlement plan agreed by both parties and adopted by the United Nations Security Council in 1990. The UN must put an end to Morocco's control, control of the peace process. The UN must ensure the protection of human rights in the territory and must include human rights monitoring in the mandate of UNESCO. The UN must protect the natural resources of Western Sahara. What we think uh, and our position as uh, Sahrawis, I believe that Polisario Front can never be a partner in any process that does not fully respect the inalienable right of Sahrawi people to self-determination and independence. The decolonization of Western Sahara can only be accomplished through two options, either through the withdrawal of the Moroccan army and administration from their territory, or the organization of a free, fair, and just referendum of self-determination. There is no third way. The Frente Polisario is willing to continue to cooperate with the UN in the endeavor to fulfill its responsibility towards the people of Western Sahara, but we, but we are not prepared to give up our legitimate rights. Our people have been suffering an enormous human cost waiting for the decolonization of their homeland. We are not prepared to spend another 30 years in futile discussions trapped in a dialogue of the deaf with a regime in Rabat that is determined to torpedo the peace process and deny our freedom. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard Kamal Fadel, who's Polisario Front's representative in Australia and New Zealand. And this was from Australian Western Sahara Association's panel discussion on Tuesday, the 12th of October, about the United Nations' role in the Western Sahara conflict. So, as I said, you just heard from Kamal Fadel, and earlier you heard from Golriz Gahraman MP from the Green Party of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And the full recording of this is on the association's Facebook page, and that's at Western Sahara Down Under. Thanks, Priya. And next up, I think we're going to go to a track, which um, I, I said this morning that we really needed some tracks because, you know, we need the energy. So this is a new one. Um, it's Shadows by Briggs and Troy Cassidaly. where my people were killed. I see shadows on the hill. Speak about the first battles They can only see when they're looking down a battle I see the shadows, I hear the shots I feel the spirit from the fight that never stops They wanna talk about a fight we got never stops Where the bodies drop, they build a fucking parking lot And they call that survival Put us on a mission Force fed us bubbles They put statues on our land just to worship old sidles on our hands just to keep us in a cycle Blood on their heads, bodies at their feet And there's a warning they gon' hanging from the trees Name for the banks, rivers and the streets Now the shadows never leave, no justice, no peace Shadows on the hill, up beside the old sawmill Where my people were killed I see shadows on the hill I'm the strength of that spirit, I'm the 
You are listening to 3CR 855 AM. The track we just heard was Shadows by Briggs. We are now going to be um, listening to Chris Sharinga, a campaigner from Gecko, um, who in discussion with Meg and Zeb from City Limits on how important direct action continues to be in protecting the environment. I work for Gungaroo Environment Centre as a, as a campaigner. I've been working there for a couple of years now. I suppose since the Erin and blockade that we kind of supported out, out in East Gippsland, it was four months of, um, of community, community action, which included direct action, citizen science, whole bunch of, whole bunch of folks going together to, to protest logging, um, in a really, really important unburnt area of forest, um, in the Erin Undra Plateau. And yeah, so there was a really incredible result. There are a couple of the, area, the areas where the protests were, have now been taken off the logging schedule, uh, and Environment East Gippsland have launched a court case to try and to try and um, protect those areas, which is which is really exciting. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, so, what are Gecko focusing on uh, in Erinundra at the moment? Um, at the moment, the, the logging machines have have left the area, and it's quite cold and wet there. Through, through the winter times and, and hard hard for them to log in those areas. Um, and so we're kind of keeping an eye and just getting ready for when they inevitably go back in spring and summer. There was recently a new timber release plan put out by the government logging agency Big Forest and the timber release plan is basically, it comes out every year and it adds additional areas um, yeah, onto the schedule okay. to, to be logged. So, yeah. Yeah, and is, that's technically open for comment, isn't it? People could go and uh, make submissions to that or not? Um, yeah, it is open It is open for comment. The, the frustrating thing is is that I don't think 
any areas have been taken off or changed based on based on public comment. So it's kind of very tokenistic right. sort, of, <laughs> sort of process. Um, and that's why things like, you know, the direct action stuff is so is so successful because uh, a lot of the time processes that, that, that we go through with government don't get the results that, that we want and so we do have to go in there and actually physically stop stop what's happening mm-hmm. um, and really put the pressure on. And even though it's really important to have to have our voices heard and to say that, you know, we're not we're not okay with this lobbying, we don't want it to go ahead and really express community concern and 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 that, you know, they want to see this forest protected. We don't want we don't want the logging anymore. It's really, really important. Um, but yes, Sometimes those processes can be can be a bit frustrating. Yeah, um, and we got news from Fiona York about uh, there's another government process going on the major event review about the impact of the fires on the regional forest agreement. Um, yeah, I'm not sure whether you uh, can talk much to what they've said about that. Yeah, so basically the the regional forest agreements they're agreements between state and federal governments which give logging an exemption from federal environment laws and they were being they they were twenty year agreements but last year they have rolled it over and it's a ten it's a ten year agreement so it'll end on that twenty thirty date. Uh, the problem is is that they were rolled over just after the bushfires and they didn't ha- take into consideration the impacts and there was no real changes to logging you know, to consider to consider the devastating impacts of the fires, mm, and so okay. now they they but they've put in a new clause which says, oh, if there's a massive event which is going to affect you know the terms of this agreement, then then we're going to look at the agreement and, and consider that, those impacts. And so they're looking at the impacts of the fires. The issue is is that you know it's been more than a year and logging has still gone ahead in areas which are really important for wildlife after the fires, and so. And also the the recommendations that come out of the review aren't legally enforceable and they don't actually have mm. to act on, on the recommendations, which is quite frustrating. But we're still really encouraging people to make submissions and get involved so that, you know, we're sending a really clear message after the fires, forests and wildlife need, need protection. Awesome. And we can get that link and um, put it in the show notes so that people, listeners, can go and help out with that. Awesome. Um, another thing that Meg and I were chatting about in the intro is uh, using sort of surveys of endangered species uh, in areas to um, prevent logging from being able to happen there. Uh, and we were sort of... Uh, well, I wanted to ask you, like, how that kind of works and, and what legislation that takes advantage of, uh, and is that going on at the moment? Yeah, so for, for many years, geckos used citizen science and, and surveying for wildlife to protect areas of forest. There are some, some laws in East Gippsland which give species protection. Um, a lot of those laws are pretty old and outdated, and so... And, and definitely could be strengthened, but we kind of use whatever we can to, to protect these areas. So, for example, one of the prescriptions is that if you find more than 10 greater gliders in a one-kilometre area um, or one-kilometre line, then then you can get 100 hectares of, of forest protected. And so that's one of the tools that we use uh, to, to protect areas. But the, the issue is, is that 
often um, uh, the the government has to sort of be really pushed for for the protection areas to cover where the species are actually are actually found. What we've found in the last year is that some of the reports that we've put in, uh, the government either isn't putting in the protection areas and saying that they don't need to put in put in the zones and are just flat out refusing to, okay. or they're putting in zones that you know don't aren't even going to be logged or they're along areas that, that we're just never going to be logged, mm-hmm. like streams or they're outside the coop or that kind of thing. So we're still having to fight to to get those areas protected, but. Yeah, more mm, frustrations. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, it is fun. It is fun going out and doing and doing citizen science. And we regularly kind of have um, citizen science camps um, out out in the forest where we teach people how to survey for threatened species. And yeah, yeah. So people can go and get involved if they want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's very exciting. Like actually being out in the forest, getting to see threatened wildlife. It's 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 really cool. Yeah, we were also talking about that um, before about uh, both the like barriers to being able to uh, access and, and uh, get to these beautiful places in Australia, uh, but also how like uh, seeing seeing places in real life really like uh, makes a difference to your activism. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It kind of reminds you, yeah, what you're what you're fighting for, and yeah, it's it's imp- yeah. It's a nice thing to do. It's a long, but yeah, understandably, East Gippsland is it's a long way away, especially for folks in Melbourne. I mean, it's a six, six, seven hour drive, but mm. definitely worth it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, another question um, that we were talked a little bit, touched a little bit on um, on the other campaign that we were talking about, the, the Tarkine campaign, um, and I wondered. Um, whether this was also happening in East Gippsland, uh, whether the sort of anti-logging groups um, are working with traditional owners and um, what that looks like and what um, whether there is any sort of prospect of some sort of... Um, uh, I'm not sure, like, what native title uh, sort of status things are going on or whether there's any other kind of routes to go down there. Um, but do you have anything to say on that? Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, can't, I probably can't speak, speak to native title or treaty or that or, yeah. or those, those kind of processes, but I suppose um, Gekko has long-standing relationships with, um, with some of the Bidwell families um, from East Gippsland, uh, in so-called East Gippsland, and... Um, yeah, recently there was sort of uh, some some progress there, and that there was there were some logging coops that were scheduled in in the Bidwell Reserve, and it's one of the only areas that actually recognises Bidwell people and the Bidwell Nation. So, um, and what happened was was that Bidwell elders actually wrote to the government to say that you know you need to take these coops coops off the mm-hmm. off the logging schedule, and they were removed, which was mm-hmm. which was really really um, which was really great and a really awesome uh, first step. But I suppose as well, um, along with, you know, other tra- traditional ones in East Gippsland, like Gunakurnai folks and, and, and Monero as well, that there is no consent from mm-hmm. <laughs> from from those traditional owners for, for logging to go ahead. It's a very tokenistic pro- process. And I think um, 
a lot of work, yeah, really needs to be needs to be done in terms of, you know, the government is saying that they're in treaty processes and 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 trying to, you know, really um, make progress or work with, with with Indigenous people. But while logging is going ahead, and given like the cultural significance of, of these forests for for traditional owners, yeah, it's it's, it's a really um, frustrating process. I mean. I don't know if you guys were aware, but there was a few years ago um, a, a bunch of um, uh, traditional owners from across Victoria in, in areas that, that were being logged, mm-hmm. uh, Tangarong, Gunakerne, um, Jabarong. They wrote a letter to the government to, to say, you know, we don't we don't give permission for logging to go ahead on country. And it was a really powerful and really important message. And they never received a response mm. from from the Victorian yeah. government. So yeah, it's pretty it's pretty disappointing. And yeah, I think much more needs to be done in that space. Yeah, mm. for sure. Okay, um, we're getting towards the end of the show. Um, but is there anything else that you want to add before we head off? Um, I think if if anyone is, is listening, I suppose, and they and they want to get involved with with what we do, um, yeah, you can visit visit our website. It's gecko.org.au and gecko is spelled G-E-C-O. Uh, we're, we've got a mailing list and, and we're, you know, a, a couple of times a month we'll send, we'll send out email updates of how to get involved and if people are interested in doing any of those submissions and stuff, we, we regularly update our, um, our website to, for people to get involved. Nice. So, yeah. And I'm assuming also that um, there might be sometimes people travelling in between <coughs> Melbourne and East Gippsland who uh, there might be a ride share opportunity for people who, for whom transport is an issue, perhaps. Yeah, 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 definitely. yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, you can always get in contact. Yeah, get in contact directly. We've got like a contact form and stuff on our website. So, yeah, if people are interested in coming out, and they do need a ride share and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Can try and coordinate for that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show, Chris, and thanks for all the work that you're doing. Thanks for having me, and you guys as well. (laughs) Thank you. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. That was a beautiful end to that um, interview there. And we just heard from Chris Sharinga, campaigner from GECO, the Gungera Environment Centre, in discussion with Meg and Zeb from City Limits on how important direct action continues to be in protecting the environment. And to find out more, you can um, listen to to uh, City Limits at 3cr.org.au forward slash City Limits or go to the Gecko website, which is gecko.org.au. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. 
You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR and next up we're going to be speaking with Amer Kangiza, an award-winning geographer and sound artist. Amer is an incoming Marie Curie International Fellow in Geography at Royal Holloway University of London. Uh, and following the UN Biodiversity Conference last week, they're joining us to discuss working through listening and attunement to approach relations between people, place and ecologies. And good morning, Amer. Good morning. So good to thanks have you. Thanks for that very flattering introduction. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure actually getting to spend a little bit of time looking at your all your work. It's a kind of amazing resource, your website. So um, maybe we can share that at the end of the interview. But, but for now, I'd just like to yeah, invite you to introduce yourself a little further and talk a bit about the work that you do. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as you mentioned, I'm a geographer and a sound artist. Um, and basically what I'm, what I'm, I've been doing over the past sort of 15 years is, um, working with different kinds of sound methods. Um, so things like, um, field recording, sound walks, um, sound mapping, um, oral testimonies, uh, songs, things like that to kind of understand the relations between people and environments. So basically listening to how people and places tell us things through sounds that we might not otherwise um, necessarily pay attention to. So it, it sounds kind of um, it sounds kind of wild, but I think, you know, probably the best example is like uh, most recently uh, where people were talking about how during lockdown with the planes being, you know, not flying anymore, how... Uh, different bird species came back and people could hear birds better um, or you could hear a greater abundance of birds or a greater diversity of birds. So what I'm really interested in in the work that I do is how listening to the environments that we're in and also, you know, I mean, a, a big part of this is also listening to how people interact with environments and how people interact with each other. So things like, you know, um, when you're talking to someone and maybe there's a big silence in the conversation because someone can't really articulate, you know, the the immensity of emotion that they're feeling or something like that. Um, so, yeah, in my work, I know it sounds a bit quirky, but in my work I spend a lot of time listening to all of those kinds of sounds um, within an everyday environment, within everyday interactions that might not normally get picked up on in how we understand the world around us. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds, yeah, it sounds really great to me. I, I actually wanted to yeah touch a bit more on listening because um, in your work you do yeah obviously talk about it as this um, activity that involves listening to sound, which I guess is what we usually think of as listening, but there's also other layers um, and levels of complexity to what you're talking about when, when you describe listening. So could you kind of go into that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the idea that listening is just done with the ears is, you know, it's it's a really false idea. It's also entirely ableist. But, mm. like, there are so many ways that we, like, we kind of, uh, our body senses sound and senses vibration, because sound waves is vibration anyway. So, like, for me, listening is about, like, sensing sound. It's, it's tuning into sound. It's noticing sound. It's things like, you know, having a gut instinct about something, the way that your body feels when you're in specific kind of places. And like a part of this work really came for me also about thinking about what it means for me as a first, gener a first generation white Australian, being on, being in a place where I was not invited, you know, and where I'm unwanted in this place. And to think about what my relationship to particular kind of places are knowing that my inhabitation here is also a dispossession of Indigenous sovereign owners. So, yeah, I started working with this, like, thinking really about, like, why is it that 
you know, when I go to particular places, like I feel a particular kind of way, like I feel not good in particular spaces. So I started really thinking about like, you know, what, what does it mean for me to listen? Like, from where do I listen? Like, who am I personally that is listening? How do I listen to places? Like, what do I pay attention to? And, you know, what am I hearing? And I think questions like that are, are really, really simple questions, but they're not questions that we tend to, well, at least I didn't tend, don't necessarily tend to ask myself a lot of the time. And I think those kinds of questions are really important to understanding, you know, how to... I mean, I know it's a big claim, but, like, how to abolish a world built on white supremacy and dispossession. Because, I mean, really, for me, what this listening work is about is about a larger kind of, a larger movement towards liberation. And this, these ideas of listening that I'm working with, I mean, they're, they're not my ideas. They come from a very, very long and incredibly ongoing lineage of people working around listening. I mean, for me, I came... Um, in a pretty big way to this work through um, reading this incredible book by a Fijian professor called Una Isinabogo Baba um, called On Knowing and Learning an Indigenous Fijian Approach, where she talks about um, silence as a pedagogy of deep engagement. And there are also like a lot of Aboriginal um, scholars and writers that talk about um, deep listening, like Miriam Rose and Gunma Bauman and you know, also in Blackfoot ontology, there's a Blackfoot philosopher, Leroy Little Bear, who talks about listening to the environment as well. And so there's a really strong, um, a really strong uh, movement around this work that has been going on for decades, really. And so that's all the kind of work that I'm drawing on to think about what it means for me personally to be in particular environments and particularly thinking about, like, what it means to listen to climate catastrophe and the way that environments are being forced to change um, at this point in time. Yeah, um, thank you so much for that. I, I, you know, I asked you on the show like, originally when I was thinking about um, that UN Biodiversity Conference and we spoke with um, Merning Elder Banalori last week um, about, you know, his country and his fight to save the um, Great Australian Bight and the whale nurseries there. And just thinking about... Um, biodiversity, ecocide, ecosphere um, in kind of a structural way in the way that it's, it's both linked very much actually to a place. It's very specific and it's, and it's also linked with that kind of bigger systems. And rather, I don't know, there's something about, I haven't been able to articulate exactly what it is, but there's something about this kind of way that the, um, a, a something like the UN frames biodiversity as this particular issue that just feels like, you know, we're never going to get to it unless we're kind of approaching it um, in, a, in some other way. And, and I think, yeah, these approaches that you're talking about, um, I don't know, they resonated with me at least. Um, and I just wanted to ask you a bit more because there's, there's other ideas that you're working with as well around place and around kin and why mm -hmm. these are things that are also important in thinking about biodiversity and non-human, human relationships as well. Yeah, so um, the work around kin that I've been um, participatory of is really coming from a collaborator of mine um, who's a Métis scholar, Zoe Todd, and she talks about kin studies um, as a way to kind of connect the relations between place, um, place and people and the way that we understand the world, like producing knowledge. Um, and actually here in Australia, there's really brilliant work being done um, by the Baraka Collective as well in northeast Arnhem Land. So I think that kind of work really puts a focus on the relations between um, us and our environment and the kinds of different obligations that we have to environments that we live in, um, the importance of uh, 
uh, building ethical and reciprocal relations with land and place. And I think, you know, <laughs> this is really, <clears throat> sorry, this is really important to kind of take this approach because, you know, what I really understand is that, you know, especially the settled settler colonizer here, like the relationships that we kind of develop to land are inherently extractive. You know, it's mm. this kind of idea that we just live here. We don't live, like we live on this place. We don't live with this place. And it, it, it follows this kind of idea of what Aileen Morton Robinson calls the white possessive, like a way of kind of possessing and extracting from place and from indigenous people that is not about reciprocity and not about care at all. And I think, you know, what listening brings to these kind of approaches is a kind of slowing down, like a way of being really, really attentive to where you are, your relations to the place where you are, and, and how you kind of move within that particular place. And I, I personally don't know that it's possible to think about ecocide or to think about the extraordinary amounts of biodiversity loss that we're going through without completely reconfiguring. Um, and when I say we, I'm talking about like particularly settlers here, like without completely reconfiguring our relationships to the places that we are and the kinds of accountability and responsibility that we actually have to those places. Because I think that kind of mindset of possession and violence and extraction is so inherent, particularly within like, uh, within structures of whiteness and, you know, highly, uh, capitalistic ways of being, being within the world. And, you know, the way that I approach listening and understand listening is, is that it's a kind of like, almost like a first step to really reconfiguring that relationship and reconfiguring those ways of understanding the world because it's, it's actually a really huge and difficult step to kind of take to actually be in place and to actually listen to the place where you're in and to think about and, I guess, dismantle your relationship to that. Yeah, thank you um, so much. Unfortunately, we're running low on time this morning, but um, I really appreciated talking to you. And I know that on your website, there's lots of links to talks that you've done and also um, where you refer to some of those scholars and practitioners and things mm -hmm. that you've been talking about. So people will be able to find your work there. Could you just share your website with listeners so they can find that work? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's my surname, which is so complicated. It's amkandiza.com. So that's spelled A-M-K-A-N-N-G-I-E-S-E-R.com. Well, thank so you. If you just Google my name, it will come up. Yep. I'm the only AM Candiza around. <laughs> we can just, um, we can also link to your website in the show notes. Thank you so much, Amir, for speaking with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. And just then we heard from Amir Kangiza, an award-winning geographer and sound artist, and they're an incoming Marie Curie International Fellow in Geography at Royal Holloway University of London. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, and now we're going to go to a track. This one is Rebel Time by Moonga Kay and Sampa the Great.
You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard Therapy by June Jones. And prior to that, you heard Rebel Time by Munga Kay and Sampa the Great. Now you're going to hear uh, an interview with Mama Alto, who's a jazz singer, cabaret artist, and gender transcendent diva, as well as the CEO of Transgender Victoria. She joins us to talk about Rainbow Vaccination Week, or FabJab. And there's also a little bit uh, more information on that available because today uh, doc- Mama Alto will be with Dr. Anita Munoz answering vaccine questions live on the Joy 94.9 Facebook page. So that's today, Thursday, the 21st of October at 5.30 p.m. But for now, hear this chat with Malika. Thank you for joining us this morning, Mama Alto. How are you feeling this morning? Thank you for having me. You know, I'm feeling really excited about our Fab Jab Rainbow Vaccination Week that's happening uh, this week with a whole range of partner organisations and our wonderful pop-up vaccine hubs helping to make uh, COVID-19 vaccination more accessible to members of different communities so that they can all come forward and get the jab. Yeah, I think it's really incredible that there is this whole week dedicated towards supporting community around um not only getting vaccinated, but also having access to information that is tailored. And for listeners that might not be aware, could you tell us a bit more about FabJab and Rainbow Vaccination Week and what it's all about? Definitely. So, you know, as you just said, a big part of it is the information uh, and resources so that communities can help make those informed decisions. And uh, particularly for our LGBTIQA plus communities, for our rainbow communities, Many people have lots of questions around how uh, vaccines might interact with their routine medical treatments, with hormone replacement therapies, with PrEP and other HIV medications. So being able to gather a whole bunch of partner ambassador FabJab organisations together, including Drummond Street Services, Joy 94.9, the National Institute for Challenging Homophobia and Education, Switchboard Victoria, Thorn Harbour Health, Vincent Care, Your Community Health, as well as uh, nurses and clinicians from Star Health and CoHealth uh, to deliver vaccines. All these organisations came together as the FabJab ambassadors, uh, and we created a website with a whole lot of resources, fact sheets, information, uh, as well as online information sessions across Facebook all week, uh, hosted by all different organisations. We have different tools and resources for people around their specific concerns and queries, Uh, as well as our pop-up Rainbow Vaccine Week hubs. Uh, There's one at the Victorian Pride Centre, one at Drummond Street Services, and one at your community health in Preston, with the idea that LGBTIQA plus people who feel a bit anxious about coming and getting their first or second dose can come to a familiar, trusted, inclusive, welcoming environment, be amongst friends in the Rainbow community, and just have that extra support to make sure they get vaccinated and get all the information they need. That sounds absolutely incredible. I know for myself, I get a bit stressed out when I go for any jab. And so knowing that I'm going or like communities going to a place where it's trusted, people might have already been there or known clinicians that work there, just like removes a tiny layer of anxiety that might show up for many members of the community. Um, and in the past, you've also shared that vaccine hesitancy extends beyond anti-vaxxers or those with extreme views. Can you tell us a bit more about potential vaccine hesitancy amongst marginalised communities in Victoria? Definitely. So that's a big part of Rainbow Vaccine Week and the FabJab campaign. 
you know, people traditionally think of and what we see in a lot of media about vaccine hesitancy is that it's purely driven by anti-vaxxers or extreme fringe views. But we actually know that some people have very valid fears and concerns around the vaccine. They want to be able to talk to people who understand the ins and outs of their specific situations. So, for example, people want to know that when they go in to get the vaccine, they can talk to someone about how it might interact with PrEP, uh, which is pre-exposure phylaxis medication to protect people from uh, HIV AIDS. They might want to know how it's going to interact with their hormone replacement therapy if they're trans or gender diverse. Uh, and being able to come to a place where they know people will be familiar with those, where they don't be in the position where they have to educate the person who they're asking for advice about LGBTIQA plus issues uh, in order to receive uh, the information they need to make their vaccine decisions, that's a big help. Another example is members of trans and gender diverse communities might have a lot of anxiety around being misgendered or disrespected, often unintentionally, at larger vaccine hubs uh, with staff who might not be familiar with some of those communities' concerns. So providing rainbow-specific places for them to go, particularly if they went and had their first dose and found it scary or unfamiliar and uncomfortable, being able to come and get their second dose with some comfort and confidence that they're in an inclusive, friendly rainbow environment is going to be a big thing. Uh, and in addition, as you mentioned, it extends across to other marginalised communities and familiarity with the service provision. So, for example, Drummond Street Services on Drummond Street in Carlton is a fully accessible building with ramps, with accessible toilets, and very familiar to many of us in the community who might use mobility aids or wheelchairs. So being able to go to a place that you've been before, you know that it's accessible to you and your access needs is also a big part of this community campaign and the ambassadors campaign. Rainbow Week is a part of that, but it has extended across many communities, including some of those we're serving at these pop-up hubs. Uh, and it's just really great to meet communities where they're at, particularly communities who may have had negative experiences historically or in, the, in their own past or trauma in medical or clinical settings. I love that it's at every every layer that there's been consideration on how it can be the most accessible, positive, supportive experience, like from the information stages to when you walk into a centre or speak to a clinician or even when you're receiving your vaccines. It's such a considered approach, which is absolutely incredible and should be more mainstream, but it's also incredible to hear the amount of thought, effort and care that's kind of put into this um, campaign as a whole. And, mm, and it has received a lot of mainstream and government support to help make it all happen with, the, as I said, that idea of meeting communities where they're at yeah. rather than trying to get everyone to come in to a huge uh, centre or hub or hospital setting. Yeah, no, for sure. And can you tell us a bit more about why it was important for you to be a part of the campaign? Like why it was important to you personally? So for me, I'm currently CEO at Transgender Victoria. I'm a board member at Switchboard. Uh, and those are two of the um, organisations involved. We've had great working relationships with our organisations, with Thorn Harbour Health and Joy and Drummond Street, Niche and several of the other organisations involved. So it was a really great time for us as community organisations to come together um, because during lockdowns, um, it's hard for queer communities who usually thrive on being able to come together in person in our physical spaces, our celebrations, um, as well as commemorative events. Uh, it was very difficult time for our communities yeah. to be able to have this drive 
for rainbow vaccinations to encourage people to get to the point where enough of us are vaccinated that we can protect those who can't be and then we can manage to gather safely in public again and start easing restrictions. That's a big thing for our communities. Um, so part of it was that motivation to get our state to the point where we can reopen safely, uh, protecting our communities so that those who can come forward and get vaxxed feel comfortable to do so and so that we're protecting those who can't. Uh, and another big part of it was knowing myself as a trans person how scary and anxiety-inducing yeah. attending medical and clinical settings can be. And that includes misgendering or misnaming, which is sometimes also called dead naming. So there are lots of people in our queer communities who the name or maybe the pronouns that they use don't necessarily match the ID documents that they have to present, including Medicare cards uh, at vaccination hubs. And that can cause quite distressing and confusing experiences for our community members, but also for staff members. Uh, because if you're a staff member at one of the big mainstream hubs and someone gives you an ID and a Medicare card and the photo and the name don't match what this person looks like, presents as, and how they introduce themselves, yeah. that can cause some confusion and stress as well. So part of this Fab Jab campaign for us uh, and what was personally a big motivation for me was providing uh, a fact sheet put together by all of our ambassador organisations uh, for clinicians and service providers about that issue, that sometimes people's IDs won't match their appearance or their names, yeah. uh, and, and providing a letter and fact sheet template to help people navigate that so that people, and you know, a lot of people might say, oh, this is political correctness gone mad, or this is identity politics, but actually it's just about that simple fact of medical service provision that we want it to be equitable, inclusive, welcoming and comfortable for everyone involved. So FabJab is also about providing the tools like this letter template to make that happen. Yeah, no, that's so incredible. And it's it's really driven by that care, which is really obvious in everything you've shared so far. And as part of FabJab, I believe you're running a Q&A session this evening, um, which is Thursday the 21st at 5.30 p.m. with Dr. Anita. Can you tell us a little bit more about the session and how people or listeners can join in or even ask an anonymous question? Yes, so a big part of FabJab and the Rainbow Vaccine Week campaign is about making sure people have the answers they need to feel confident to come forward and get the jab. So um, through a combination of community um, with myself and all the ambassador organisations and clinical medical expertise uh, represented in this Q&A by the excellent Dr Anita Munoz, uh, we'll be doing this live stream of questions. So people uh, can log in to the FabJab website, which is also where all our resources and info sheets are, and yeah. that's um, joy.org.au slash FabJab. Or they can go to the Facebook pages of any of the participating ambassadors, Joy, Transgender Victoria, Switchboard. They're all listed at that website. Um, and if you go to those pages uh, tonight at 5.30, you can watch that live stream of questions. The questions themselves are ones asked directly by community members. So over the last month or so, some community members have reached out to the ambassador organisations and sent us direct questions. But also you can go to the FabJab website and submit your questions ready to be answered. We're going to be doing a half hour live stream answering questions live on Facebook, uh, on all those organisations, Facebook and hosted on the website. But if we don't get through all the questions that come in, 
we're still also going to record video content and articles and fact sheets based on all the questions that come in and roll them out over the next week so that as many people can get the information they need to feel confident to get the vaccine. That sounds absolutely incredible. And as just a final question, any final thoughts or comments you have for anyone that might be a bit unsure or worried or considering getting the vaccine over the next couple of days and weeks? Definitely. So if you are concerned or worried, you can, of course, talk to your trusted medical professionals or you can come along to one of the vaccine hubs and ask some of the staff there. At, uh, at the Rainbow um, Hub at Your Community Health in Preston um, today, Thursday the 21st, we're going to have peer navigators there who can assist people, not just with their vaccine questions, but also to download their digital vaccine certificate, uh, learn how to use the Service Victoria app to check in, any questions like that to navigate the pandemic. Uh, today and tomorrow, Thursday and Friday, we will have the same vaccine services and questions and support on site at Drummond Street Services in Carlton on Drummond Street. Uh, and Thursday all the way through to Sunday at the Victorian Pride Centre in St Kilda. No, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that information. And for anyone interested, um, they can look up FabJab or check out Joy as well for more information and we'll um, definitely share around the links for those resources as well. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mama Alta, and sharing your knowledge and information and wisdom with us today. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's uh, just a great time to get fab jab so that then we can all be together again once more. Totally. Thank you once again. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Um, we were just listening to a, an interview with Mama Alto, who is a jazz singer, cabaret artist and gender transcendent diva, as well as the CEO of Transgender Victoria. And she joined us to talk about the Rainbow Vaccination Week or FabJab. For, for more information on FabJab, um, you can also check out um, the Joy FM website which is www.joy.org.au forward slash fabjab um, and just a heads up that fabjab and joy fm are running an event this evening at 5 30 p.m which is a live q a session with mama alto and dr anita munez um, and you can find out about that on the fab um sorry the joy fm website or facebook page and we are now going to be hearing a track um called lung by Tida and Kuyanil. I'm yearning a lot, I heard that's the mission 
I'm feeling old at the party Can't see me, tell me, can't see me, can't find me And I'm too grown, too worthy, can't find me I made an enemy, sitting back, see the screaming I'm all discreet with my gimmicks That shit got me feeling different I could never speak for a living I can't even speak for my niggas I can't fucking sleep, I'm insisting Not in the police like I did All my currency, non-existent I got blood on me, fucking spinning I got blood on me, rolling with it I got blood on me, I can't fucking sleep, I'm insisting Don't get me police like I did it All my currency, non-existent I got blood on me, fucking spinning I got blood on me, rolling with it I got blood on me That was Lung by Teether and Kuya Neal. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CRA 55 AM. I am obsessed with that song. I could listen to it all day. And I feel like, I also feel like you can you can tell when I'm picking the songs because it just seems like I've been playing Teether and Kuya Neal every couple of weeks. That is such a, that, that song is just so good. So I think the listeners will, um, if, if not... Um, uh, love it, at least in, uh, forgive us for replaying songs. No, I mean, like, I haven't been replaying, but uh, I... Oh, God. God forbid. Exactly. But, um, you know, what are we, a commercial station? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, yeah, I think it's just, like, a really nice, um, like, sad, slow, but also really catchy track to, to capture my moods, uh, to capture my mood, um, you know, coming out of lockdown and not really knowing what's happening and feeling really disoriented. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, for listeners listening to the interview with Amir, you know, I was 15 minutes fast forwarded in my brain and was like, oh, got to wrap it up. But, you know, that's just what's happening right now. Like, you've got to forgive yourself for these um, brain farts that are just constant. Yeah, and um, really encourage people to go check out Amir's work. They are, they've just been putting out, you know, amazing stuff about deep listening, listening to place and, you know, relationships to 
to place as a settler on unceded Wurundjeri land, but also thinking in relation with other scholars like Zoe Todd, who they mentioned um, in their interview. Yeah, so should we um, do a quick wrap-up and rundown of the show? What do yeah, we have on I this morning? So um, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off. Uh, so on Tuesday, the 12th of October, the Australian Western Sahara Association held a panel discussion on the United Nations' role in the Western Sahara conflict, and today you heard two speakers from the discussion, Golriz Gahraman MP, who's the Green Party of Aotearoa New Zealand member, and Kamal Fadel, who's a Polisario Front representative in Australia and New Zealand. And the full recording is available on the association's Facebook page at Western Sahara Down Under. We then spoke to Chris Sheringa, um, a campaigner from Gecko, um, who was speaking in discussion with Meg and Zeb from City Limits on how important direct action continues to be in protecting the environment. And then we spoke with Amir Kangiza, an award-winning geographer and sound artist, and they joined us to discuss working through listening and attunement to approach relations between people, place and ecologies. And lastly, we heard from Mama Alto, a jazz singer, cabaret artist and gender transcendent diva, as well as the CEO of Transgender Victoria, and she joined us to talk about Rainbow Vaccination Week or Fab Jab. Yeah, and just a reminder again, there is an event tonight where Mama Alto is joining Dr. Anita Munoz on Joy 949 FM's Facebook page from 5.30 p.m. to answer your questions about the vaccine uh, live, yeah, so live on Facebook. And you really encourage uh, members of the LGBTQIA plus community to put in questions, especially if you're thinking about how this intersects uh, or how the virus, bleh, my goodness, brain farts. Brain farts all around, but how the vaccine might interact with other medications. Yeah, and that's unfortunately all we have time for. Last brain fart. Thanks for joining us. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.